is a Sunday in the church calendar when we often think about the baptism of Jesus. Um, that's the passage, short passage that I'm going to read to you from Matthew's Gospel, which is his account of that event. It's from Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus, it's another one of those passages that, or those events with which we are well familiar if we've been part of a church for any length of time. John the Baptist, the great prophet, the one out in the wilderness with the strange diet of locusts and honey, preparing the way of the Lord and offering a baptism of repentance. That's not actually detailed in the little passage that I read to you, but you read elsewhere about John and that's what he's offering. A baptism of repentance, of owning sin and turning away from sin. Repentance meaning literally to turn from one direction to another. And that's what he is offering. But as he has been doing that, and as the crowds have been coming to meet with him and to be baptised by him, he's been saying, you think this is something, wait until the one whom I'm preparing the way for arrives. The Lamb of God, the Messiah who I have been waiting for. I'm not worthy, said John, to untie the... What was the phrase? Gone. Untie his sandals or something like that. Thank you. Uh, the string strip. Of, oh gosh, I'm all over. I've been up, I've been up half the night. Um, untie his shoelaces. That'll do. Um, and he says John will provide a baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit. And so John, who has been preparing the way for this Lamb of God, comes face to face with him in this little passage that I read to you. And as it's presented to us here in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus joins the crowds who are coming to John. He doesn't make some big public uh, declaration, here I am. It's John who he encounters face to face, and Jesus comes as one of the many, if you like, as one of the crowds who have come for baptism. And John is a little thrown by this. I need to be baptised by you, but do you come to me? John, of course, doesn't know the whole story, but he knows some of it, enough to know, as he'd already alluded to in his prophecies, that Jesus was the one to take, would be the one to take away the sins of the world. So, from John's point of view... Jesus is not one who needs a baptism of repentance because he has nothing to repent of. 
it should be happening the other way around, says John. You need to baptise me, Jesus, says John. And Jesus' reply, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus gives this answer to say, this is actually what needs to happen. And Jesus doesn't actually explain what that means. This phrase, to fulfil all righteousness, is a somewhat mysterious one. And certainly you can imagine when Jesus says it, presumably just in a conversational kind of way, with John as they stand in the water. John is going, I don't really understand. Jesus doesn't offer an explanation, but he consents nevertheless. John baptizes Jesus. Then we know what happens next. As soon as Jesus is baptized, as he, is, as he comes back out of the water, heaven is opened, whatever that means, we can't really picture it, but it's something remarkable. We see uh, the Spirit of God descending like a dove on Jesus and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This moment of affirmation and declaration from God the Father saying, this is my son. But I suspect if, if this is a familiar story to you, then you probably know what the point of this is, actually. And if you remember my sermon last year at this time, then you should. <laughs> so I'll sit down. No, um, it's, it is another moment of identification. It is Jesus identifying with those who need to repent, us. All the people coming to John, all of us. It is an identification. And that sense of identification is present throughout Jesus' life, of course. It, it happens in the birth narrative that we've just been thinking about over the Christmas period. All the signs that God gives that we've considered over this time. This is the birth of my son. And then we don't read much more about the son's life, apart from that one instant, age 12, when he gets left behind in the temple. We don't read anything more about that, his life, until age 30, when, around age 30, when this happens. But because this identification has already been made by God with humanity in the form of Jesus, Jesus starts identifying with us in our ordinariness. In this time, Jesus was not, it seems, doing anything particularly remarkable. He was growing up, being part of a family with everything that entails. And if you've just lived through a family Christmas of any sort, you don't need me to tell you what that entails. And training and working as a carpenter, manual labour, just living a life. Jesus identifying, God identifying with us in ordinariness. But this, of course, marks the beginning of Jesus' what we refer to as public ministry. The time of sermons, of healing, of parables, of miracles that will ultimately lead to his death and resurrection. The identification with us so that he can pay the price for us, that we might know the Father whose son he is. 
But we know all that. I haven't told most of us anything new. But here's the thing. John didn't. John did not know that. It's very difficult to think ourselves into the shoes of the people who we read about in the Bible. And it can be a really helpful practice if, you could, if you're able to set aside time, kind of a longer time to pray and read scripture at some days, or if you're in a context of a retreat, it can be a really helpful thing to, to try and read the narrative passages of scripture in that way, thinking yourself into the shoes of the people you read about because it opens things up in a new and helpful way. And John, for all that he had some understanding of what was going on, because he had been preparing for the Lamb of God, he didn't really, it seems, understand the purpose of Jesus being baptised here. And he did not know what the consequences of that would be. He had enough trust and enough knowledge of God, trust in and knowledge of God, say, okay, let's do this. I don't know where it will lead. I don't actually completely understand it, but okay, I will do this. Of course, it would lead to great fruit, ultimately. The fruit of Jesus' baptism and life and identification with us is the reason we're here today in, in this space. It's the reason we worship. It's the reason we say we are Christians. But there would be great suffering to come, and John wouldn't have known that either. Suffering for him personally, as John, and suffering for Jesus, of course. But none of that would have been known to John. There is simply the statement from Jesus, we need to do this, John, and John says, okay. There is an invitation through in events narrated in scripture like this for us to hear the promptings of God and to be obedient to them. To discern what God is saying to me to you as an individual or to us as a church and to respond appropriately. Not knowing fully what the consequences will be for suffering and for fruit. Not knowing fully the reasons why God might be inviting us as individuals or as a church to do something. But we have we hope, enough trust in and knowledge of God to say, okay, let's do this. As John did. Trusting that he could only see the next step in front of him, which was the act of baptism. What is the next step in front of you, in front of us? I can't tell you what the next step is for you, of course. That's your responsibility. Most of us, many of us, through this 
period of time in Christmas and New Year, we, we naturally find ourselves thinking, what, what's ahead of us? It's a natural time of reflection. And for some of us, we will perhaps be considering major decisions that we are aware that we need to take in the near future. Or we might not be aware of anything in particular for this next period of time, but know we need to have a house in order, whatever that means for us. As a church, uh, there are things we need to consider. I said this to a group of us towards the end of last year, and just to repeat very briefly what I said then, the three areas that that we really need to focus on, I think, and the, the wardens, we've been chatting about this as well, we talk about it as council. This is in no particular order, they're just the order I wrote them down in. The first is the church finances. The second is the mission of church, what we, of the church, what we do to present to people the reality, the reality of Jesus and his call on our lives and our life of prayer. We did a lot on prayer in 2019, which culminated uh, in the week of 24-7 prayer in October. So what do we do next? And what is your individually role in each of those things. The reality is that that each of those things, the church finances, the church's mission, and the church's prayer life is, is not about one thing that I present to you or one thing that I do. It's about what we all do, and that involves you individually. What will you give to the work of the church financially? What will you discern is your role in the church's mission? What will you discern is your role in the church's prayer life? As, as I sometimes say, and it, it bears repeating, to quote the prophet Jack White, which will be a very obscure reference to about most of you, but he's, he wrote a song which he said it bears repeating. Nobody? Nobody? The White Stripes? Jake. Fell in love with a girl? <laughs> said it once before, but it bears repeating. No? Go home. Google it. Um, it bears repeating. I don't know what any of you give financially to the church. A couple of people have to know for admin purposes, obviously, but I don't know. So when I stand here and say this, I'm not targeting one person, okay? That's the baseline. But there are two aspects to our financial life as individuals in relation to the church. One is that we as a As an Anglican church, we receive no income other than what we make for ourselves. So that's from the rental of properties, uh, the hall and gingerbread house across the road, uh, fundraising that we do, and giving from the congregation. Okay? That's it. We don't get any other outside help. We don't get grants. We don't... None of that. Secondly, it is generally accepted among amongst Christian discipleship over 2,000 years in the history of the church that as Christians we should be giving to the work of God and, a, and particularly to the work of God in the church of which we are a part. It doesn't mean you shouldn't give to other things as well. There will of course be people or projects with which you have a, a particular relationship or association or concern and that, that's important. But we use the language a lot of church of family, okay? You've heard, you've heard us use that a lot. F- being a family involves our money as well as our presence and our prayers. 
So I'd urge you to please consider prayerfully your giving to us as a church. And also to the church's mission, what that looks like over the coming year and what it means for you individually and for our prayer life as a church. We'll be saying more, I hope, over the next few weeks, particularly about the church's finances, but that uh, Lynette is the church's treasurer. So uh, she has a more um, detailed knowledge of the financial particularities than, than I do at any one time. So if you have particular questions about the church's finances, then the, the first person to address them to should be Lynette. Without, but don't just form a queue in front of her over coffee, okay? You know, <laughs> take a ticket and then when she calls your number. Um, but in terms of mission and prayer, I would love to hear your ideas and your thoughts, what God is prompting in us over the coming year. I'm going to lead us into a time of reflection. That'll initially be silent. Then uh, there'll be uh, Colleen and Patrick will play some music to aid our reflection. And then we'll sing a song together. I'm going to uh, give you a paper and pen if that would help you. But you don't need to use the paper and pen if you're not that sort of a writing down sort of person. Remember, this is the beginning of a process. Unless you feel a very strong prompting from God about one particular thing now, you're not going to probably take a particular decision now. It's the start of a process of prayerful reflection for you. But what is God saying to you? To fulfill all righteousness for you and for us as St. Peter's in this coming season. What do you need to respond to and do over these next couple of weeks to set yourself up for 2020? You might not know the full significance of, you might not know the full plan for, but that you know the next step needs to be this. So I'm going to leave some silence. If you want uh, a piece of paper and a pen as I walk down the church, just raise your hand and I'll get it to you.